We're going to be looking now at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verses 1 through 5. The title of today's message began, and in, in your bulletin it says, The Affectionate Heart of the Apostle Paul. And uh, as I continue to uh, study and research, and I, I like to check my notes against other other preachers and teachers, and uh, I saw that John MacArthur had uh, labeled this the pastor's heart of the Apostle Paul. And so I thought, I like that. I like that better. And so that's why the change is there. And so we're going to look now at First Thessalonians chapter 2, actually it's chapter 3, and verses 1 through 5. Would you like to stand for the reading of God's Word? Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For, in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened. And you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the riches of your word. And I ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to see the affectionate pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul. And we ask that you would help us, Lord, to learn from his example as pastors and elders, as fathers, as mothers, Lord, as brothers and sisters toward one another, that we would have this deep affection that would show up uh, in these wonderful, godly ways. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. How can we know someone's heart? You know, man looks on the outward appearance, we're told in God's Word, but the Lord looks on the heart. We don't have the ability to look upon the heart the way God does. And it's not enough just to hear what people say or even to watch what they do because people can be duplicitous. They can be deceptive. They can put on a face, you know, a mask for their true feelings. And so it's difficult sometimes to know what someone is really like in their heart. And so in order to really know their heart, we have to know how they feel in their heart. And uh, especially how they feel about us. And that's going to show up in subtle ways. But we have to understand, first of all, where these feelings are come from and, and why they tend to reveal things that you wouldn't otherwise know. You know, st people who study communication, arts, as I, I have, uh, 
that was my, one of my fields of study in, at the universities. And uh, I came to the uh, realization that feelings are our emotions, and our emotions are a means of communication, what you would call body language. And there are people who study this very, very scientifically, and they can, they can pick up on all kinds of things watching people's body language, right? Their, their posture, their facial expressions, even poker players know how to look for tells, they call them, in a poker game. Someone uh, raises an eyebrow or twitches their nose. They know that something's going on there. They're feeling something, and it's being communicated in their body language. And body language really does overwhelm even our vocal language. When we are talking to someone and they say one thing, but their body language says another, we tend to go with the body language, right? And so... Feelings and emotions reveal what we really value. That's really what's going on. Uh, if you are seeing something that you value, it could be a person, it could be a possession, and if you have a sense that it's in either danger or it's secure, or that somebody's trying to steal it, you know, or that it's getting destroyed by some means out of your control, you will emote to the degree that you care about it. To the degree that you value it, you will emote, and to the degree that you perceive its status, you will emote. So it's like two knobs on a television, uh, that one, one knob you turn it up and that's your feelings, your values. The other knob is your perception. And so if you turn them both way up, you'll go ballistic, right? You, you get really upset because you extremely value something and you extremely perceive that it's either in danger or otherwise uh, in jeopardy. And so in this passage, the Apostle Paul reveals to us how he feels. That's the interesting thing about this particular passage. It's short, you could say it's sweet, but it is a, a, an ex, a revealing passage of how he feels, not only about the Thessalonian Christians, but also how he feels about his fellow workers. And how he feels through this epistle, speaking down through the ages about us. And so it brings us to the question of, did Paul have a pastor's heart? You know, when when people talk about so-and-so has a, a pastor's heart, they mean they relate to people in a certain way. And so I want to identify three areas that would define a pastor's heart. A pastor's heart is a heart that has deep affection for his people. A pastor's heart is a heart that is unselfish toward his people, so he's willing to give his very best for their spiritual benefit. A pastor's heart is a heart that has compassion for the trouble that his people are going through, and so he is willing to suffer with them as they go through the trials of their faith. So those are the three criteria that we want to kind of look at the Apostle Paul in light of these three ideas. And so we're going to let's see uh, if we can get a sense of how Paul felt and how those feelings moved him to do what he did 
for the early churches. So first of all, we see that Paul did have a deep affection for God's people. In 1 Thessalonians 3.1, we read, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. So what is he enduring? What he's enduring is the uh, unknown, not knowing what's going on there in Thessalonica. But he begins this verse with the word therefore, and we all know whenever you see therefore, you've got to find out what it's there for, right? And so we go back just a step into 1 Thessalonians 2, the last verse of the chapter, verse 20, and it reads, for you are our glory and joy. He feels deeply about these people. They are uh, his crown. They are what he looks forward to standing in the presence of the Lord with them. And so now because he's uh, separated from them, it's unendurable. Okay? It's, it's unendurable. That's, that's the word. So Paul could no longer endure not knowing how the New Thessalonian Christians were doing. And so he sent Timothy to find out. And not only to find out, but also to strengthen them and encourage them in their faith. So Paul, as we saw before, carries a deep concern for the Christians. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28, where after listing all of these ways in which he has suffered as an apostle, as a missionary on the mission field, he says, and besides all those other things, what comes upon me daily is my concern, my deep concern for all the churches. He says, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? Paul is feeling deeply toward all these Christians. It's, it's, like, it's like Paul is a spiritual midwife. And he has thousands of newborn Christians out there to nurture and nurse and to care for. You know, he's, he's been attending to this process as all of these people are being born again into the family of God. And he is just running around like crazy trying to take care of all of them, right? So we're told in... Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as though who must give an account. Then this interesting phrase, statement, Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. We have a responsibility as Christians, as members of a, of a church, and we can also bring this into the family. Children have a responsibility as members of a family. To try to make it a joy for the people who are taking care of you to take care of you. For, for a child that looks like holding your arms up when mom's trying to put your shirt on, right? You know, not fidgeting around and trying to get away and you know, don't make it exhausting just to dress you in the morning. Well, that metaphorically can represent a lot of different relationships. The church is like a family. Pastors and elders have a responsibility, kind of like a father, corporately, 
Deacons have a kind of a corporate responsibility like a, like a mother. And so they both the team, the elders and the deacons, are taking care of the family of God. And, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, try to make it a little easier for those who are taking care of you. Don't make it hard. It doesn't have to be that hard. Um, they love you. They're watching for your soul. They give an account to God for how well they care for you. So try to make it a little easier for them by not uh, responding badly. And so when God's people in the church do not respond to the ministry of God's word as they should, it causes grief. Grief in the heart of their pastors and elders because they honestly care for you. Now Jesus is the ultimate example of this kind of loving affection. We see in John chapter 10 and verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. And as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. When you love someone truly, you're going to be willing to give your very best for their benefit. And Jesus gave his life. You know, we could say that God sent, God the Father sent his best, right? And then Jesus gave his best. And then the apostles took this gospel and gave it their best. And so now it comes down to us to give our best to not hold back, to not be half-hearted. Remember Ananias and Sapphira, you know, they tried to appear as though they were being, uh, giving their best, giving their all, but in fact they were, they were wanting to get the praise of men and be able to keep a substantial part of the supposed contribution. And Peter points out that, you know, it was yours before you sold it, and it was still yours after you sold it. You didn't have to lie to the Holy Spirit. And so God, in in a sense, like a repeat of the scene of Achan uh, in the book of Joshua, God decides to send them to the locker room, bench them. You know, I personally don't think that Ananias and Sapphira lost their salvation, but I think they were sent to the locker room and couldn't finish the game. You know, you're not kicked off the team, <laughs> but you're not going to get to play in this game. So, God does discipline his children, and that's not the same as damning their souls to hell. Okay? We have to get that through our heads. God can be displeased with us, and he can discipline us for our disobedience, but we're in the family of God, and so he deals with us as a father deals with his children so that we will not be rejected like the world that doesn't know him or love him. True affection is also going to take action. You know, there's a famous uh, song and a character in the musical Oklahoma. You know, if you, and I, I can't recommend it because it's a horrible story. You know, even though it's got cowboys in it, it's still a horrible story. But there is this character named Judd Fry. And Judd Fry is a no-good, low-down scoundrel. And everybody in the town knows it. But at one point, the uh, main character is trying to talk Judd Fry into uh, 
having a wonderful memorial service for himself by just, you know, take himself out, can, you know. And they, he's reenacting the funeral service and he's saying, poor Judd is dead, poor Judd Fry is dead, you know. And he says, the, 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 the lilies of the field will give off a different smell because poor Jed is laying neath the ground. You know, and so it's lots of that type of thing. But the, uh, the one line that I'm wanting to get to is where it says, Jed loved all the creatures. He loved all the children and the, ch- cre- and the creatures and everything, but, but he never let on, and so nobody ever knowed it. Now think about that. We, want, we, we, we sometimes think, oh, I've got all these wonderful feelings for people. You know, I love my fellow man, but we never let on, and so nobody ever knowed it. True love takes action. True love shows up. True love is going to be there to do what needs to be done. And so in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2, he says, therefore, when we could endure it, no, no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow labored in the gospel of Christ. And so Paul sends Timothy, he takes action, he sends Timothy to go and see what's happening there in Thessalonica. His affection uh, is shown by his unselfishly sending Timothy, whom he dearly loves, to see how the Thessalonians are doing and to strengthen their faith and encourage them. So true love and affection is always going to lead to this kind of unselfishness. Now, it may not appear too uh, clearly here where this unselfishness shows up, but it was an unselfish sacrifice for Paul to send Timothy to Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2, therefore, when we could endure it no longer, he says, we... though." We thought it good to be left in Athens alone. Underline that word, alone. And we sent Timothy. And Timothy is our brother, our minister of God, our fellow laborer in the gospel. This is a sacrifice for Paul to be left alone in Athens. You see, he had already sent Silas to Macedonia. So it's not like Paul is staying with Silas in Athens. He's staying alone in Athens, and he's now sent his dear son, Timothy, uh, son in the faith, to go and check on the Thessalonians. And so Paul had to experience this being alone in a very, very ungodly, pagan, idol-filled town. And he doesn't like to be alone. If you want to get a sense of how much he doesn't like to be alone, take a look at 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Paul had an open door to preach the gospel, but his spirit just could not rest because where's Titus? 
He's supposed to be here. And, to, and Paul takes off going to look for his dear brother Titus. Paul was a man who loved people dearly. And especially he loved his brothers and his co-workers in the gospel. Let me keep moving here. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in the church. Timothy, in a sense, was Paul's gift to the churches. You know, when a a man goes to seminary and these seminary professors pour their lives into these young men in training them and preparing them and then sending them out. You know, that's their gift to the church, right? Their ministry is to train up these young men and send them off uh, to minister. Well, something happens in local churches many times where you have somebody who's coming up through the ranks in the church and the the pastor and the pastors of the church are investing in that young person and and building them up and encouraging them and teaching them, maybe sending them off to seminary and helping them go to school and all this with the hope that they're going to stay in that church and they're going to be a part of the church for a long, long time. And then God calls that person off to some other part of the world. Well, that is their gift to the church. It's a sacrifice. Paul has invested heavily in Timothy And Timothy is a beloved son to Paul. And now when Paul sends him off to the churches, you know, this is not like, hey, I'm going to go down, you know, to southern Oregon and visit a while. I'll be back next week. These are long journeys. There are bandits. There are real dangers. People die. And And so when these people say goodbye to one another, they don't know that they'll see one another ever again in this life. And so Paul sends Timothy as his gift to the churches. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I may also be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded. I don't have anyone else like him. There's nobody who is going to look at things the way he looks at them, who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own. This is Paul being up front with us now. There aren't very many like Timothy. For all seek their own interests, not the things which are of Christ, Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he has served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. When Paul sends Timothy off to see how the Thessalonians are doing, he is making a very unselfish sacrifice. Because not only is Timothy gone, but Silas is gone as well, and Paul really is alone. Timothy was Paul's very best, and he sent his very best to the work. So why was sending Timothy such a sacrifice for Paul? In 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, we have him writing to Timothy. And he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things that, I, that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these 
to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Paul has in Timothy a sense of his legacy. I don't know whether Paul realized how much his, his epistles, his letters, uh, would impact the church, but we get a sense that he has, uh, he's banked a whole lot on this young man, Timothy, to go the distance and finish the race, fight the good fight. All that Paul had in this world were his friends. You know, you, you, we don't think about this often, but Paul didn't have a lot of money, and he didn't have possessions, he didn't have homes, and, you know, we don't know what he had in Antioch. Maybe he had a house there that he rented out while he was gone. We don't know, but the guy didn't have much. But what he did have was his brothers and his co-workers in the ministry. And so this is Paul being generous, being unselfish, because Timothy was like a son to Paul. Sending Timothy to the young churches was a great unselfish sacrifice for Paul to make because he loved him so dearly. Now, Paul also had a deep compassion for all the new converts. The word compassion is a combination word. It, it has to do with suffering with somebody. Suffering with another. Painful sympathy. Not just observatory, not just sympathy, but painful sympathy. A sensation of sorrow that's excited by the distress or the misfortunes of another. It is pity. Commiseration. Compassion is a mixed Passion compounded of love and sorrow. At least some portion of love generally attends the pain or regret or is excited by it. Extreme distress of an enemy even changes enmity into at least temporarily affection. Now this is Webster's 1828 Dictionary. I always like to point out that you don't write definitions like this just for a job. This man was delighted in the words in the English language. And when you are like that, you tend to write encyclopedias and dictionaries. In Hebrews 13, in verse 3, we read, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. That is compassion. Compassion is to suffer with somebody. Those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. These are our fellow members, our brothers and sisters in the family of God. So remember the prisoners as if you were chained with them. They're sitting in the cell with them, sitting on the floor there with them, watching the rats in the corner with them. That's what compassion is all about. Paul's compassion flowed out of a combination of his deep affection for his people and his utter unselfishness toward these people. And so compassion seeks to help. It's not passive. Compassion is more than sympathy. Compassion seeks to help to make things better. And we see the Apostle Paul's compassion clearly in verse 2 when he says, And we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. So the best thing that Paul could do for these Thessalonians 
was to send Timothy to them. But what was Timothy assigned to do? Timothy was sent to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. This word strengthen in the Greek means to support or establish or like to prop something up. It has the idea of propping something up in order to help support it, to keep it from falling down. Paul wanted their faith in God to be propped up by Timothy for him to make it stronger, to establish it, to make it firm, to make it solid, to make it unwavering. But then Paul also wanted to encourage them. Now this word encourage means to uh, impart courage. When I encourage you, I am trying to strengthen in you this willingness to do something that maybe you're afraid to do. To to help you get over that, that hurdle that would keep you standing there passively looking at a situation when you need to have the courage to take action. And so for him to encourage them was to encourage them to take this faith that was now strengthened and apply it, put it into action in doing what is pleasing to God. But we notice that Paul qualifies this. He says, I want Timothy to strengthen your faith. Why not strengthen and encourage them in a lot of other stuff? Why not strengthen and encourage them in their love? or in their pursuit of holiness, or in their evangelism. We see these things show up in later parts of the letters to the Thessalonians. But when Paul sends Timothy to the Thessalonian church, he sends him to strengthen their faith and encourage them. I believe the answer to this is profound, and it should affect our strategies for church missions. It should affect our strategies for for church planting. Because the answer is, if you are strong in your faith in God, you will have a firm foundation for everything else. If we don't have a firm foundation concerning our faith in God, everything else we do may get hijacked by other causes and issues. Do you realize that For hundreds of years, missionaries have spent tremendous amount of resources going to places around the world and uh, starting schools to to teach the people how to read. And the intention was that they would then read their Bible. And that would just be wonderful. But do you know what actually happened? We raised up a bunch of communists who could read. We did. We created in country after country future leaders of their communist party in missionary schools. Now, I don't mean to be unnecessarily critical here, but what if we had put our emphasis on the right syllable? What if we had gone in with the intention of winning converts to Christ rather than literate people and then with the plan to bring them into the church and have them study the Bible. 
What if, what if we just obeyed God and, and, and went out to win people to Christ and strengthen their faith in Christ? You know what would happen? We would end up planting churches. The best thing we could do for any community around the world, including our own nation, is to plant a fully functioning local church in that neighborhood. And then that local church, filled with true believers in Christ, will look around the neighborhood and say, now what can we do to love our neighbors? Do we need a a school? Well, let's start a school. Do we need a medical clinic? Then let's start a medical clinic. Do, Do we need an orphanage? Well, then let's start an orphanage. But let it be run and operated and supported by believing Christians in a fully functioning local church, and we may just stop raising up leadership for the enemy. Now, this, <laughs> my homeschool advocate is coming out, okay? Um, why would anyone in their right mind put all this time into raising up kids and then turn them, you know, it says that children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Why would we turn our arrows over to an enemy to launch for us at the last moment? Say, okay, we've done a really good job all the way up through uh, junior high and high school. Let's let them finish school at the local school for their senior year. They'll get to do the prom. They'll get to do the graduation. They'll get to do all this cool stuff that we all know and love, you know. And, and then we wonder why our enemy ends up being the one who's actually pointing them. And, you know, we become wounded by our own members of our own household because we allowed an enemy to aim our arrows for us. So there, I'm done. So strengthening them in their faith, strengthening their faith is Paul's assignment. Because everything else follows. If you are weak in your faith in God, it will be all but impossible for you to love others or to strive to be holy or to win souls. It is your faith in God that not only motivates these things but regulates them as well once the foundation of faith in God is strong and you are firm in that you can be encouraged to apply what you now know about God in every area of life including the founding of new institutions to do good uh, for your community so what is Timothy going to do How, how is he going to strengthen their faith Well, he's going to give them more of the word of God that Paul preached, more of the truth. He's going to tell them more about God. He's going to tell them more about Christ so that their faith is in the Lord himself and not in Paul and not in man, but in Christ. Ephesians 1, verse 18 and 19 is a prayer that Paul makes and it reveals what Paul's objective is, his goal is in his ministry. He says that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. If you have that, you're going to make history. Whether people hear about it in this life or not, you're going to make a difference because you know your God. And those who know their God will be strong and do exploits, we're told, in the prophecy of Daniel. When we know 
and believe what is true about God, we can base our entire life on that solid foundation. That's the rock of Christ's teaching. And be encouraged to live in every area of our lives in the light of that reality. So it's a very strategic thing for Paul to send Timothy to Thessalonica specifically to strengthen their faith. Paul taught Timothy how to do this by his own personal example. In Acts 14, 21, we read, And when they had preached the gospel to that city, which was Derbe, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting, that word is the same word translated as encouraging in in Thessalonians, and then encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Do you see the consistency here of Paul's strategy of doing the work of the ministry? And Timothy learned this principle of you plant a church, you gather a a congregation of believers, and you just kind of let them simmer for a while. There's no leadership yet. It's just everybody loving on one another. Paul taught them enough that they could just love on one another, gather consistently. For all we can tell, they gathered daily. They didn't just gather once a week. And they would gather and they would encourage one another and build one another up. And then they would come back. And when they came back, they would see who was elding, if there's such a verb. And who was deking, if there's such a verb. And then they would appoint the elders and the deacons to now provide leadership for this congregation. And so we see Timothy doing that as well in Ephesus, where Paul writes to Timothy, here's how you identify an elder and a deacon in the local church. These are the same two Greek words, strengthening and encouraging, in Acts 14, as we find in 1 Thessalonians. Timothy was going to do in Thessalonica what he had seen and heard Paul and Barnabas say and do on their missionary journey. So Paul is strengthening the faith of the disciples by grounding them in the truth of God's word and then encouraging them to trust God enough to actually obey him even in the most difficult of times. This is why we have sermons I love this passage in Acts chapter 15, verse 32. Judas and Silas, being prophets themselves, that's, that's preachers, you know, not just prophetic, but they're, they're the men who proclaim the word of God, encouraged and strengthened the brethren. And there's those two words again, right? Encouraged and strengthened. So how did they do it? How did they do that? It says they did it with many words. It's translated in other, in other uh, translations as with a lengthy message. And that's why I preach so long. I want to encourage and strengthen you in your faith with a lengthy message. How can you be strengthened and encourage someone's faith with many words or with a lengthy message? Well, the answer is you can do it by delivering a message that clearly reveals God in Christ and is presented in such a way as to encourage the hearers to apply what they now know about God 
to obeying him in even the most difficult of situations. Bible teaching strengthens us. This is what it does. In Acts 15, 41, and he, Paul, went through Syria and Cilicia doing what? He's strengthening the churches. Acts 18, 23, he departed and passed successfully through the Galatian region in Phrygia. And what was he doing there? He was strengthening all the disciples. Romans 1, 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. And the word there is, is the same, strengthened. And that you may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both you and me. So the idea is we strengthen and encourage one another. The minister is strengthened and encouraged in the process. I'm strengthened and encouraged by preparing the message and by delivering the message and preaching to myself in a very real sense at the same time that I'm preaching to you. So Paul wanted Timothy to go back to Thessalonica to strengthen and encourage them by teaching them the Word of God. In 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. Paul knows what they're going through. His heart aches for them. But he says, I don't want anybody to be shaken or disturbed by this. And the verb here is sanyo. The word sanyo means to wag like a dog wagging its tail. It's, a, it's an idiom. We, we don't want to try to get mystical meanings out of idioms, okay? It's just a way of saying, I don't want you to be going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So Paul is saying, I don't want any of you to be wagging back and forth. No more wavering in your faith. Paul is adamant about teaching them more about God in order to stop them from wavering. And that is a, a high challenge. So what does Paul fear is going to cause them to be shaken from their faith and to waver in their faith? The answer is these afflictions. He, these pressures. These tests of faith. Paul knows that afflictions are coming. And, and they know it too. He says specifically, for you yourselves know that we have been appointed to this. Not just this happens to happen. We've been appointed to this. It's like a, a father sending his son to uh, a soccer camp. You are appointed to run these laps. Right? You are appointed to do these drills. And the father has appointed us to go through tribulation and suffering and affliction in order for us to be growing up in our faith, to become strong. They say that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And that's really what we're dealing with here. If these afflictions don't cause you to lose your faith, they will cause you to have a very, very strong faith. So how do they know that they were appointed for this? Well, he says, for in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened. As you know, they're going through it. 
But how did Paul know they were going to suffer tribulation? Did he have some, some personal revelation? Well, no. He knew just like all the other disciples knew because Jesus told him. And he told us in the Gospels, Matthew 10, 25, it is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. <coughs> Excuse me. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, which is not a nice name, by the way, how much more will they call those of his household? Jesus is telling us, you're going to be treated the way they treated me, and they're going to crucify me. And he tells them, many of you are going to die. In John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. It's an interesting place where Jesus says they'll kill some of you, but not a hair of your head will be harmed. How does that work? It's because death in this world is not the end. As the hymn says, it is not death to die. We are going to be with the Lord and not a hair of our head will be harmed and I believe in some cases such as uh, Brian's hair will be restored (laughs) we are safe in the arms of our Lord we're going to have temporal trouble as we look ahead to our eternal glory keep that in mind you're going to have temporal trouble as you look forward to your eternal glory. Now, should we tell someone who has just been led to Christ that they are going to have temporal trouble uh, as they look toward eternal glory? Yes, that's exactly what Paul did. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Remember, he says, what I told you. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. So yes, we should, we should tell new Christians, you're going to suffer for your faith. Get ready for that. It will strengthen your faith. God is not abandoning you. It is worth it. Please do not be discouraged. But even though you were told ahead of time you've still got to be strong in your faith in order to go through it successfully. That is what faithful pastors, elders do. They teach the Word of God in order to strengthen our faith so that when we go through trouble in this world, and we will go through trouble in this world, we will still be encouraged enough to stand firm in our faith in Jesus. That is what good pastor elders do. Now, just as I was wrapping up my preparation, I came across this quote from one of my favorite pastors, and that is John MacArthur. And he writes this, give me a pastor who expects the Christian life, uh, that the Christian life is going to have pain and sorrow and difficulty and trouble, because then he'll have the compassion that a pastor is supposed to have. Deliver me, Lord, from ever being under somebody who thinks life ought to be without trouble. 
there are a lot of people we could mention that he would not want to be under uh, as a pastor. Pastors are not here to tell you what you want to hear. They're here to tell you what you need to hear, what you need to know in order to be able to stand strong as you go through trials and, and persecution. I was sharing with uh, Brian here before I began to preach here that, uh, uh, you know, I'm running for city council in Silverton. You know, and uh, I'm kind of an unknown there in many ways. But I noticed that uh, when, when the voters' booklet hit the street and a description, my statement in there, refers to me as being active in my church and, and being a relatively conservative uh, person, my yard signs began to disappear. Those suckers are $14 a piece. I'm mad. My yard signs are disappearing from people who told me I could put them in their yard. There'd be three or four yard signs in a, in a row, and I'm one of them. And I drive by, and mine's gone. I'm being persecuted for Christ. <laughs> I hope it doesn't get any worse than that. But it is, you know, uh, it is real. If you're going to let your light shine before men, if you're not ashamed of your relationship with Jesus, some people are going to not like you. And they will do things that you would not do, but they don't have the same moral, ethical uh, boundaries in their lives. And so they, they steal your yard signs. So, Paul felt very strongly about this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, he writes, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. You see, the same Satan who hindered Paul by keeping him from coming to Thessalonica was also able to tempt the new Christians there to abandon their newfound faith. And so Paul is concerned that this tempter who hindered him would also go after these young Christians and try to lure them away from their profession of faith. So Paul sent his dear son in the faith, Timothy, to check in on them and strengthen their faith and encourage them to apply their faith by walking faithfully through their affliction. So we come to our conclusion now. Did Paul have a pastor's heart? According to our criteria, a pastor's heart is a heart that has affection for his people. I think we can say yes, he passes that. A pastor's heart is a heart that is unselfish toward his people, willing to give his very best for their spiritual benefit. Yes, we see that in Paul. And finally, a pastor's heart is a heart that has compassion for the trouble his people are going through, and so is willing to suffer with them as they go through the trials of their faith. And so Paul clearly had a pastor's heart. What moved him to do all that he did for the early churches can be summed up in this simple truth, that he felt affection for his people, he was unselfish toward his people, and he had compassion toward God's people.